Welcome to the teaching ministry of Calvary Chapel, South London. You can visit us at calvarychapelsouthlondon.org. Good afternoon, everyone. My name's Robert, and I'm one of the pastors here at South London. And if you're joining us for the first time, welcome to our series in the book of Acts. And we're going to have a little mini-series within our series. And let us read Acts chapter 8. We're going to start reading at verse 5. It says, Then Philip went down to the city of Samaria and preached Christ to them. And the multitudes with one accord heeded the things spoken by Philip, hearing and seeing the miracles which he did. For unclean spirits crying with a loud voice, came out of many who were possessed, and many who were paralyzed and lame were healed. And there was great joy in that city. But there was a certain man called Simon who previously practiced sorcery in the city and astonished the people of Samaria, claiming that he was someone great, to whom they all gave heed, from the least to the greatest, saying, This man is the great power of God. And they heeded him because he had astonished them with his sorceries for a long time. But when they believed Philip, as he preached the things concerning the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, both men and women were baptized. Then Simon himself also believed. And when he was baptized, he continued with Philip and was amazed, seeing the miracles and signs which were done. We're looking at the history of the early church. And today our message is Philip, the deacon evangelist, part one. And in part one, we're going to be looking at this particular individual, Simon the sorcerer. We're only going to start looking at him this week. Simon the sorcerer. If you remember last week... We talked about the early church, that is the church that had just begun in Acts chapter 2. We talked about the early church being saved, which was wonderful, and growing, which was fantastic, but now being battered and scattered. As missionaries or as Christians on a mission, according to God's agenda... That's how these early believers spent their lives. And the question, or a series of questions that I asked last week based on this particular line of thinking. And it is, how will your life be spent? How will your life be spent? (laughs) We talked about the fact that Knowing the limited time frame that we have, right? If you were here. How will your time be spent? Now, as I said, I'm 41 years old. And according to a life expectancy of 74 years, I have about 32 years approximately left. And 
based on that, I've been asking myself a few questions. To those of you who are Christians and also to those of you that are not Christians, I ask those questions that I've been asking myself. I question your vision. What is your vision? I challenged your destiny as you would see it. I hope that you were provoked to consider an alternative in terms of the direction of your life, the vocation, the occupation that you have, your profession, career, your relationship, relationships. I ask you to look at your own life and begin to ask those questions of yourself. Now, not everyone, if you're a Christian that is, not everyone is called to be a missionary in a specific sense. But we are all called to be missionaries in a general sense. Question is, are you a Christian who's on a mission? Are you a Christian? And then if you're not, the challenge at the end of last week was to become a Christian, then you can actually become a Christian on a mission. See, how is your life representative of the kingdom of God? According to Acts chapter 4, we see that the church is beginning to spread, right? Moving from Jerusalem through Judea to Samaria. So the church is beginning to spread and it's moving where from? From Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria. And I wanted you to be able to see it. Because so often we hear about these particular names, but we don't know where these places are. So now you can see where Jerusalem is in the middle. Can you see Jerusalem? And um, the gospel is now spreading from Jerusalem to Judea, which is in the south, and also up to the north in Samaria. I've left the distances on there just so you can see how little Israel actually is, because they've done a lot of walking. Sometimes, you know, we don't really understand and appreciate that it wasn't that far. I mean, it is hard to walk 10 miles, but, or 20 miles, as we saw yesterday, right, on the walk. But um, Israel, um, generally speaking, is not a very big country. Um, now, as they spread, so was the word spreading. In <clears throat> Acts chapter 8, we'll pick up in verse 5. Then Philip, who is our main character in chapter 8, not to be confused with Philip, who was one of the 12, this is Philip, one of the seven, who was handpicked by the apostles to become a servant slash deacon in chapter 6 of Acts. We saw that a few weeks ago. Well, it says, Philip went down to the city of Samaria and preached Christ to them. Notice how uncomplicated Philip's message was. His life, that is Jesus, his death, his resurrection, and the implications of these things as they relate to the hearer. Christ, or in Hebrew, Messiah, which means the anointed one, the promised king, the deliverer. And it was the same message, that same message that Peter had preached. It's actually the same message that Jesus had preached, check it, in the same place, and to the same people. Do you remember Jesus in John chapter 4? Chapter 4. With the woman who was at the well. 
In John 4, verse 25, it says, the woman said to Jesus, who she was a Samaritan in Samaria, she said, I know that Messiah or Christ or the anointed one is coming. <clears throat> when he comes, he will tell us all things. And this is one of the only places in the, in the New Testament where Jesus blatantly, specifically with clarity, communicates exactly who he is. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am who? Am he, that is, Messiah. Verse 5 also says that Philip, check it, he went down to the city of Samaria. Now, looking at the map as we were a little while ago, that don't seem to make sense. Because it says that he went down to the city of Samaria. From the map behind me, you can see that Samaria is where? It's up from Jerusalem. Samaria is actually north. So why does it say Philip went down to Samaria? We see the same thing consistently throughout scripture. In Luke chapter 2 verse 51, it says, Then he, Jesus, went down with them, that is his parents. Do you remember when they were in the temple and Jesus was young and they left without him? And he was there and they came back and found him speaking to the, the leaders in the temple. Well, it says, and he, Jesus, went down with them, his parents after being left behind in the temple in Jerusalem, which is south, right, and came to Nazareth, which is north. Now, where's Nazareth? There's Nazareth. Up north. Now, that sounds strange because it says he went down. In John chapter 2 verse 13, it says the Passover of the Jews was near and Jesus went up to Jerusalem from Capernaum. Now, where would you expect Capernaum to be if he went up to Jerusalem? You'd expect it to be south. But guess where Capernaum is? It's actually even further north than Nazareth. Now, this doesn't seem to make sense. How does this work? Well, Jerusalem is approximately 800 meters above sea level, making it one of the highest habitable points in Israel. So from there, you would go down to most places, even though down maybe north, south, east, or west. Wherever it is, you're going down from a higher point. So I suspect that makes more sense. So from there, you'd go down to most places. Now, we use the same terminology in the UK when traveling up to London, right? Which is south, even if you're coming from Manchester, which is north. And we say we're going up to London from Manchester. So we use the same kind of principle, albeit for different reasons. It's not for the same reason. Now, not to spend too much time on that, because I've got a feeling that thing's going to shut out on me again. Philip is now in Samaria preaching, and not just preaching, but preaching who? Christ. Later on, this man, Philip, will be known as Philip the Evangelist. And Philip, in very bold fashion, speaks to a people who were rejected quite unequivocally. As, as, you see, by most Jews, the Samaritans, for at least a thousand years, were rejected and disregarded. As far as the Jews were concerned, the Samaritans were, um, were mixed-race Jews with a mixed-up religion. And again, we see this highlighted by Jesus in John chapter 4, in that same passage. It says, Then the woman of Samaria said to him, 
How is it that you, being a Jew, ask a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Yet Philip is the absolute opposite of Jonah who gets sent to Nineveh and he doesn't want to go. Because he doesn't want to see these people receive the goodness of God and the forgiveness of God. Because he, know he knows that God's merciful and he doesn't want to share the, the message with the Ninevites because they're a wicked set of people. Or he personally doesn't like them. But we see Philip is the opposite of Jonah who refused to share God's message of forgiveness. Luke, the writer of Acts, through these pages, is teaching us that mercy rejoices over judgment and that where sin abounds, grace abounds much more. And with this mixed race of half-Jews who had begun to become very idolatrous, shifted the place of worship from Jerusalem, created their own place of worship in Samaria, built their own temple, set up their own priesthood. And were worshipping God, but at the same time, they were practicing heathen um, religious practices. We see Philip taking the message and sharing it with them. Verse 6 of Acts chapter 8. And the multitude, with one accord, he did the things spoken by Philip, hearing and seeing the miracles which he did. For unclean spirits, crying with a loud voice, came out of many who were possessed, and many who were paralyzed and lame were healed. And there was great joy in that city. Now, this brings up a good point. Some modern-day theologians say that the only people who were able to perform miracles in the New Testament were who? The apostles. This is what some theologians say. Nobody can perform miracles, only the apostles. That is, in the New Testament, first century. No one else can perform miracles, they say. Therefore, because there are no apostles in the New Testament sense today in the 21st century, they say there are no miracles now. Yet we see here that Philip, who is not an apostle, remember he's just a deacon, right? Philip, we see him performing miracles in verse 6. Now, other theologians, on the other hand, say because Philip performed miracles, then that means miracles are not relegated to the past. And I would agree. Although there are those who would suggest that miracles are to be expected, especially whenever evangelism takes place. If we get and we share the gospel, we must expect to see miracles. Well, personally, I think that miracles can happen and miracles may happen but I don't believe that miracles must happen. That way we won't be frustrated when we don't see someone healed in the name of Jesus. We must pray. The Bible says sometimes we don't receive because we don't ask. But sometimes we have to ask knowing that we may not necessarily receive what we want. Because what does it say in First John? It says, um, this is the confidence that we have in him. That if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, then we know that we have the petitions that we desired of him. But it's got to be based on his will, amen? That's why we pray. Lord, if it be your will, hey. Miracles can happen, they may happen, but it's not the case that they must happen. I suspect that one of the reasons why we see so many miracles at this point 
with regard to these Samaritans is particularly because they're Samaritans. Now remember, we're seeing a transition from only Jews hearing the gospel in the time of Jesus and in the time of um, Acts chapter 1 through to Acts chapter 7. It's just Jews hearing the message. But then Jesus says it's got to go further. And then it, tr- and it travels out not now, not just to Jews, but, wow, them half Jews are getting the gospel and rejoicing in it. Yeah, because it ain't just for you Jews. Oh, okay then. Hey, and we're going to see this come up again in Acts chapter 10, right, with Cornelius. But then further, it's not just, and, and we see it with that. It's not just Jews and then half Jews even, but then further to even the Gentiles where, guess what? We are a testimony as we sit in this room because I doubt there are any Jewish people in here. And if they are, praise the Lord, but I doubt it. We are all Gentiles. Thank the Lord that the gospel went out further than the Jews and even the half-Jews. Amen? So, I suspect that a part of the reason for these miracles is because the Lord in his grace provided them for the benefit of this isolated and hated group this hated people group, communicating quite clearly and powerfully his love and acceptance of them, but at the same time helping the Jews to recognize God's mercy and favor toward these rejects. At any rate, the important thing was that hearing Philip's message and seeing the signs, the crowds all paid close attention to what was said which ultimately brought salvation, which then, verse 8, brought great joy. Verse 9, but there was a certain man called Simon who previously practiced sorcery in the city and astonished the people of Samaria, claiming that he was someone great, to whom they all gave heed, from the least to the greatest, saying, this man is the great power of God. And they heeded him because he had astonished them with his sorceries for a long time. For some time before Philip arrived on this scene, this Samaritan area, it had actually been under a different influence. A man named Simon, or Simon Magus, or Simon the Sorcerer, as he has been more commonly known. He practiced sorcery, or magio in the Greek, where we get our word, what? Magic. A magician is defined as a person who performs feats using supernatural means. A person who performs feats using supernatural means. Simon had, verse 9, amazed and astonished the people of Samaria and even those beyond that region with his magic. Unfounded history suggests that There were accusations by Christians that he, that is Simon Magus, or Simon a sorcerer, that he was a demon in human form. (laughs) And And it was specifically said that he possessed the ability to levitate and fly at will. (laughs) Now remember, this is unfounded history, yeah? The fantastic stories of Simon the sorcerer persisted into the Middle Ages. This, for me conjures up images of men like who? I'm going to come to him. First of all, Merlin. Merlin the wizard and people like David Copperfield 
and men like Harry Houdini. And then the Prince of Darkness himself, David Blaine. My advice would be to stay away from that stuff. Now, I know there's a, there's a side to kind of magic and tricks that's kind of innocent. But there's another side that's deep and it's dark and it's demonic. Now, I would say stay away from that dark stuff, particularly for this second reason. I'm going to give you the first one, but particularly because of this second reason. First of all, Simon astonished the people by his magic arts. Not by godly miracles. Magic arts. But also, secondly, by his extravagant claims. Listen, verse 9 says, For he claimed or boasted that he was someone great. See why this is so dangerous? Because it leads to what? It leads to pride. Thank you, my sister. This man was so consumed and enamored with himself and his quote-unquote greatness, even to the point from, look, even to the point where from the least to the greatest, the ordinary to the eminent, all of them, not only gave heed to him, but also confessed that this man, Simon, was the great power of God. Or less subtly, the supreme deity. Historically, some say Simon declared that this day he had come to earth in his person for the redemption of men. It's quoted historically. Others think it more probable that Simon regarded himself and came to be regarded by others as some kind of emanation or representative of the divine being. Certainly in the second century, Justin Martyr, who himself came from Samaria, described Simon as Simon. Simon who did mighty acts of magic so that he was considered a god and was, check it, I mean that's what you do with gods, he was worshipped not only by almost all of the Samaritans but, but by even but even by some in Rome who erected a statue in his honor. Towards the end of the second century, we have a man whose name is Iranius. He said, as far as this man was concerned, he was glorified by man as if he were a god. And also, as the author of all heresies. Now, by the third century, that's the second century, by the third century, he had come to be known as the originator of what is commonly known as Gnosticism, which is a belief system that teaches that humans are divine souls trapped in a material world. And the need to come to an awareness of your true divinity called gnosis. The word is knowledge. You're God, but you just don't know it. But you need to come to know it. And when you come to know it, then you can begin to function as the God who you actually really are. Gnosticism. Modern day Gnostics are the new age. That's, that's ancient Gnosticism, right? 
Modern-day Gnosticism is the new age, and have you ever heard of the age of Aquarius? Remember the song from the 70s? Aquarius, Aquarius. You never knew that was Gnosticism. Anti-godlyism. How about shamanism? That's another one. All right, here's one that I thought would relate to some of the, some of the brothers in here. How about the Holy Tabernacle Ministries? You ever heard of that one? Also known as the Nubian Islamic Hebrews, a.k.a. the ancient mystic order of Melchizedek, a.k.a. the United Nuwabian Nation of Moors. I mean, you've got to keep up with this stuff. I mean, hey, this stuff keeps morphing and changing. If you're not careful, you miss it. And its leader is a man called Dr. Malachi Z. York. You ever heard of him? Yes. All right, now check it. Did you know what he did before he became a, a teacher and a speaker and a leader of a, of a religion? Dr. Malachi Z. York used to be known as Dr. York. And York has recorded with Harold Melvin and the Blue Notes, McFadden and Whitehead, all the 80s crew, yeah. Evelyn Champagne King, yep. He also performed as lead singer in his own groups called Jackie and the Starlights, the students, and also a group, a, a group he formed called The Passion. Now I'm wondering, I remember I used to have an album called, I'm sure it was the group was Passion and there was a tune on there called Games. Games. I'm not sure, I was looking and I couldn't find it. I never had time this morning because I was wondering if it was him. But we know Harold Melvin and the Blue Notes and all them other 80s classic artists. Well, there he is in the middle. Dr. And that's what he did before he became Dr. Malachi Z. York. Now, check this. This is him. If you, can, you can't, probably can't see it so clearly. This is him, kind of after the musical thing, his musical career. And listen to this. He claimed, now remember we're talking about Gnosticism and those who have this divine inside, right? He claimed to be an extraterrestrial being from the 19th galaxy called Iluin. Malachi born as Dwight York, not to be confused with the football player. Now, this self-proclaimed leader of his creation, which is the United Nuwabian Nation of Moors, will likely spend the rest of his life in U.S. federal prison, having received a 135-year sentence. Now, this is 2000, I believe it was 2005. Check it. Oh, no, actually, here we go. During 2003, he admitted to multiple state charges of child abuse, kidnapping, and more. Apparently, there's about 66 charges. No wonder they just locked him up and threw away the key. He's coming out in 2,119. It's 2009. 2,119. So, hey, you might as well just call it a life sentence, right? This is the man 
that people are following. And not just then, but even now. I remember when I used to work in a post office, a guy said to me, Rob, boy, you know what? You need to become part of the brotherhood. And I was like, what? But this, I mean, this time I was a Christian. And he started telling me about spaceships and them coming to get us. And the white man is the devil and all of that madness. Thank the Lord I got saved because I probably would have got caught up in that. Following a man like this. Now, check it. How many of you have heard of Entheogen? Entheogen. There was a documentary that came out in 2006. Entheogen, Entheogen, which is awaken, awakening the divine within. Check it. Awakening the Divine Within is a, is a feature-length documentary which invites the viewer to rediscover an enchanted cosmos in the modern world by awakening to the, to the divine within. Right, watch this video. We are animals. We are beautiful living mammals on a garden planet. Feeling the, the pleasure and the joy and the ecstasy of that reality is our birthright. What we are experiencing, the, the global crisis, is really uh, reflecting somehow the level of consciousness evolution in the species. Half the population on the planet is living at a poverty level. A billion people who are permanently hungry. You can't by any stretch of the imagination call that a civilization. The key, in my opinion, would be to facilitate the rapid connectivity of that which is emergent, creative, right now. The best estimates are that uh, a quarter of mammal species will be extinct in 30 years. All species of the next couple of decades are going to see tremendous dislocations and turbulence. The whole network of life forms are creating this calendrical signaling system. That's the level of attention that ideally we should be paying to nature right here. Thomas Barrett said, we're moving from a world in, seen as a collection of objects to a world recognized as a communion of subjects. expansion was a very powerful cultural idea. I mean, it swept, it, it swept the popular culture during the 60s. A decade later, um, you know, Apple Computer was pioneering the idea that the computer was a bicycle for your mind. The threads that were emerging in California on the edge of the United States in the 60s led to both, and I think it's not a coincidence they both happened, uh, you know, within the space of five miles. Obviously, Americans are least of any people in the world afraid of drugs because there's a drugstore on every corner. So if they are so afraid of mind-expanding drugs, obviously it's the mind expansion that they are afraid of. 
there are many ways you can induce these non-ordinary states. You can do it by fasting, by uh, you know dancing, by uh, sensor deprivation. We developed the holotropic breathwork, so you can you can use different things uh, uh, related to breath to really change your your consciousness. Most archaic and non-literate cultures, there is some form of initiation into adult society, and it can take the form of uh, an ordeal, abandonment in the wilderness, um, or a psychedelic experience. The way we become multicellular, the way we join together, is first of all by individuals feeling the need to find that divine self within. So now we have a basis, now we have an injunctive religion, a truth that can be tested and has already been tested in the court of science. And you can't get more proof than that, except taking it yourself. Entheogen. The reason I played that clip juxtaposed to the other, um, the other information I gave you, particularly with regard to um, Malachi Z. York, is because I want you to see that this is not just a cultural thing. It's not just a black thing or a white thing or an Indian thing. It's something that permeates our society, no matter where you come from. The, sorry the sound wasn't very good. Um, hopefully when, I, when, when we upload it, um, you'll be able to hear the sound much more clearly. But there was a, probably about 10 really strong statements. I didn't note them because I thought you would have been able to hear them. But statements that sound very Christian-like. Like, this state of being can be arrived at by fasting. This state of being can be arrived at by, by dancing. This state can... This state of godlike realization can be arrived at by taking drugs. You see how, how many different layers, you know what I'm saying, this has with regard to individuals. One, doing these things that are dangerous, but then also people doing them because they're trying to enhance this experience that is really no experience, that is really a dark experience. 
And so many people are in this state where they're looking for something that isn't there. Like I say all the time, it's like a blind man in a dark room at night looking for a black cat that isn't there. God created us in his image and his likeness in the sense that we have the capacity to think. We have the capacity to make decisions and turn to the right or to the left. We have the capacity to, to love. We can choose to be angry and respond after that fashion. That's the way we've been created in the image and likeness of God. But we are not God. And we never will be God. And the sooner we realize that, the better. I mean, men die constantly. And you'd think that by now we would get it. And the only man that didn't die and came back from the dead, he's the only one that has the, the true right and liberty to say that. I am. And he proved it by his resurrection. So, Gnosticism. This man, Simon, these are the things that he appreciated. And in verse 10 of Acts chapter 8, the Samaritans said, This man, as they say in so many environments around the world, of people who practice and preach this doctrine, if you like. They said, this man is the great power of God. And they heeded him, verse 11, because he had astonished them with his sorceries for a long time. Now, we need to take heed of this, maybe not so much now, even though we do, because most of what we see in the name of magic and so on it kind of is interesting, and sometimes you think, wow, how did he do that? But in terms of, do you remember when David Blaine done that levitation thing? Everyone's like, whoa, did you see that? And everyone's trying to practice it, but none of them have really ever done anything that is genuinely astounding. I mean, I'm talking about now. I don't know about the past, but I'm talking about right now, the time that we're living in. Yet people are being duped. The Bible helps us to remember and be reminded that, you know what? In the last days, there's going to be an individual who's going to have, I mean, real power. And he's going to perform real miracles. And it's happened in the past. Remember in, when Moses was in Egypt? And Moses threw down his stick and it, and it became a serpent. Well, it was like, hey, what's that like and what? Mo Pharaoh's ma magicians came in and done the same thing. And that's what the Bible says. It doesn't even say, oh, it was some kind of like, puff of smoke in it. And they changed it quickly while the smoke disappeared. And, oh, there's a, and they swapped it for a snake. No, the Bible gives us the impression that they genuinely done that. To the point where, where, where Moses had to say, all right then, seen. All right, so you lot can do that. But you know what? Watch this. And Moses' staff that became a servant swallowed up the other ones. And they couldn't top that one. 
but yet they performed miracles. We are given impression in the last days, the same thing is going to happen. Jesus says in Matthew 24, four times, be careful that you are not what? Deceived. He says, many shall come in my name, proclaiming to be the Christ. And that's not just people coming and saying, hey, everybody, guess what? I'm Jesus. No. Because you just run him out, innit? Well, well, we would, but... I mean, I heard, did you guys hear that Benny Hinn said about four or five years ago, I haven't really been listening to that stuff recently, but he said that Jesus was going to appear in his meetings physically, literally. And you could just go online and check, and check that and verify it for yourself that he said that. More, on more than one occasion. And it's one thing when it's out there in the world, but it's another thing when it's being brought into the church to the point where Jesus says, be careful. Read Matthew 24, Luke 21, Mark chapter 13. All of them are, are synoptic. They're all telling the same story, but from different angles. And you will hear Jesus say, be careful, specifically in the last days, that you be not deceived. And it says that, you know what, it's going to get so serious, the deception, to the point where, you know what, even if it were possible, the elect could be deceived. So, we hear these we hear these things as a, a, a warning with regard to that which is to come. Now, we find Simon challenged, just like those sorcerers in Exodus. Verse 12, but when they, heard, when they believed Philip, that is the people of Samaria, as he preached the things concerning the kingdom of God and name of Jesus Christ, both men and women were baptized. Now Simon is challenged by someone who's demonstrating true power. Someone who's demonstrating pure power. And it's not just, check it, it's not just that Philip's miracles rivaled and surpassed Simon's magic. But where Simon boasted of himself, Philip boasted in Jesus. Where Simon, like Lucifer himself, exhorted himself as some great one, as some God, Philip exhorted the only wise God. Philip preached Christ. Notice the things he preached or declared. The kingdom of God, the rule of God or the government of God. This ain't about me, Philip. The kingdom of God, echoing the Lord Jesus, right? The fact that the kingdom of God was at hand. That means it was close, it's within your grasp. And it also means that it's at the doors. Jesus is coming, it's, he's even at the doors, like about to put his hand on the door handle and come in. It's close. The kingdom of God, it would be within you. That is the rule of God. The kingdom of God, it will be like a small seed that grows into a massive tree. Like a net full of good and bad fish. Like wheat and tares, good and bad, growing together. We must be aware of these things. So we have to examine ourselves, like Tim said this morning as we take communion, examine ourselves to see whether or not we are in the faith. I'll be looking at somebody else and pointing a finger at them and... Matthew 7, verse 1. 
Don't judge others in that sense. Judge who? Judge yourself. Because with the same measure of judgment that you're judging others, God is going to judge you. Examine yourself. Lord, help me to examine myself. I don't want to be a tear in the kingdom of God. Because God will let me grow and continue and, until the day of judgment. And I'll say, Lord, Lord. And he'll say, sorry. Why are you calling me Lord, Robert? And you don't do the things that I say. Wheat and tears. The kingdom of God. This is what Philip preached. The kingdom of God is like a pearl of great price, like a field full of treasure. Paul says the kingdom of God is righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Ghost, in the Holy Spirit. What a message. That same message. And Simon has no other response than to concede. Because the miracles, oh my gosh, did you see that? Oh, the bread has been lame for all these years and look, he's running around. Mm -mm. You, 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 can, you can see me. No, you can't see me. I can't believe you can see me. Right, yeah, yeah, all right then. I believe you can see me. I mean, real miracles. Simon beholds this. And then on top of the miracles, the word of God. I mean, if, if one on its own weren't powerful enough. And that which is most important, the word of God. And Simon can't, can't it's too much for him. He concedes and he admits defeat and he accepts the message seemingly furthermore now that seemingly we're going to look at next week he accepts the message seemingly furthermore jesus said in matthew chapter 28 has it gone again in matthew chapter 28 jesus said all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me that's our that's our key verse in our men's discipleship all authority, Jesus says, in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Now that's big talk. You can't talk that kind of talk without backing that kind of... You, that's big talk. And he says, on that basis then, to the, to, the, to the 11, he says, go therefore. Because we know that Judas was getting ready to go to his own place. Because Judas was a tear. He wasn't weak. Judas, you know Judas, it wasn't like at the last minute he flopped and he fell. You know, I'm not a five-point Calvinist, but it's if you're saved, you know what? You ain't going to lose your salvation. And I definitely believe in the perseverance of the saints. If you're genuinely saved. That's why when people backslide, the first question I ask is not, mm-mm. My brother says backslidden. Oh my gosh, man! We just have to pray for him that you know he'll get restored and come back to the Lord. Now we do think that, and we do pray that, and we do hope that. But that's not the only thing that comes to my mind when I see someone backslide. You know what comes to my mind? Not is he saved and did he backslide? The first question I ask is, Yo, was he ever really saved in the first place? And that answers the question. Well, how about those people who are in church and and then end up going to hell? 
Like I just quoted, read Matthew chapter 7. Many people who attend quote-unquote church, I say attend church. Remember we looked at a couple weeks ago, the church is not a building. The church is the people. You don't attend church. You are the church or you ain't the church. And with regard to this individual, Simon, like Judas, as I mentioned, Jesus was speaking to the disciples in Matthew 28, but Judas wasn't one of them. The Bible says that Judas was actually a thief from the, the beginning. He was stealing money. He was the treasurer holding onto the money, and he was, he, was stealing, he was stealing money out of the money bag. And you see that progressively in his life because he sells Jesus out, in it? For what? For money. Money, like the rich young ruler in Luke 18, money was, was Judas's God, not God. Money. And, and that's a dangerous thing because, you know, in the parable of the sower, which talks about exactly the things that I'm making reference to, the parable of the sower says there are four types of soil. They call it the parable of the sower. Some call it the parables of the seed, Right? Um, and there's another one. And it's the one I call it, and I can't remember what it is. <laughs> the parable of the soils. Did I say that already? Soil, soil seeds, and sower. Right. I suggest that it's the parable of the soils, because it's four different types of soil. Not four different types of seed. One seed, one sower. But four different types of soils. And I suspect that those four a descriptive of those who are quote-unquote in the church. Wayside, hear the word every week. But they don't business, they don't care about what God has got to say. They do their own thing. Hard, hard like the wayside. You know, it's dirt, but it's dirt that, you know, like you go through the park and there's a cut through. It's dirt that's been trodden on. That's the path. It's still dirt, but it's hard like rock. And the seed can't even penetrate it. And the Bible says the devil comes and he steals that word. You ever come out of church and think, right, what were they talking about again? Maybe you don't even consider that. Careful that your heart ain't hard like rock. And the God's word ain't even penetrating, it's bouncing off. The second one is what? Rocky soil. I used to think it was soil with lots of stones in it. It's not. It's rock with a very thin layer of soil. Rocky soil, and the seed drops on the soil, and instantly it comes up. Why? Because it has no root in itself. You know, normally the roots will go down, and then the plant begins to come up. But it can't, because there's nowhere for the roots to go, because it's thin, a thin, thin layer of soil. So it comes up quickly. And the Bible says the sun comes out and scorches it. And the plant, it does what? It withers. Why? Because it has no root in itself. And Jesus says, that's the person who hears the, check it. That's the person who hears the word and with joy. They're the ones running up and down the front of the church. Doing backflips. I got saved. Hallelujah. Praise God. For two weeks. And then in six months time, you can't see them. Stony ground, stony soil hearer describes the heart. The third one. Now, this is the one I'm talking about that's scary. 
Because the third one says they hear the word and they receive it. But not with joy like the first guy. Because the first, the second guy, sorry. Because when the sun comes up, it scorches it. Jesus says, what is the sun? Temptation and pesting because of the word's sake. And that's the sun. And you know, the sun will either benefit the plant or it will dry up the plant. If the plant ain't got no roots, it's going to die. But if it's got roots, it's all good. I can handle the sunshine all day. Furthermore, the sun benefits me because of photosynthesis. Good root system. Sorry, I just had to go back to that one real quick. Now, the third one is the scary one. Because the plant, the seed is sown, which is God's word. The plant begins to grow. Hey, the sun comes out and it's not afraid of the sun. Because it doesn't scorch it. Why? Because its roots go down deep. And it's drawing sustenance from the soil. And it can handle the sunlight, testing, temptation. But there's something else that is a very big problem. And what is it? Or should I say, where is the problem? It's in the soil. And what is the soil descriptive of? The heart. So guess what is actually in the soil or in the heart as well as the good seed? Two things. Jesus describes them as thorns and what? Thistles. Thorns and thistles. And they're in the dirt and they don't watch the plant growing. Watch the thorns and the thistles that are growing up alongside it. And the Bible says they wrap themselves around that plant and they do what? They choke it. The word is asphyxiate. The same word in 1 Timothy 6. Now, it says it chokes the plant. I'll come back to that. It chokes the plant, and the plant does what? It, it dies. The plant dies. What does Jesus say the thorns and the thistles are indicative of? Cares of this world, or the cares of this life, and what else? That's the big one. The deceitfulness of riches which is one of the biggest doctrines in the 21st century church. Hello. It's called prosperity. Now, the Bible talks about prosperity, but the stuff that we've been hearing about ain't Bible prosperity. It is what Jesus said. The deceitfulness of riches. 1 Timothy 6 says, and those who, listen to the verse, those who desire to be rich, it don't even say you're rich yet. It says those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare. Which, check it. A temptation and a snare which, oh, and many hurtful lusts which drown men in destruction And drown men in destruction. That was bad timing, right? <laughs> Those who desire to be rich fall into a temptation and a snare and into many harmful lusts which drown men, which asphyxiates men in destruction and perdition. The word asphyxiate is the same as drown, which is the same as choked in the parable of the sower. Matthew chapter 13, Luke chapter 4. So, you see the cares of this life? Careful. 
So it's not even sin, you know. It's just a kid. Don't be overburdened with the things of this life. You can get drunk by it, it says in Luke 21. It can drunk you. And when you're drunk, you're inebriated. You're not thinking. You can't think straight. You're not thinking about the car that's coming that's going to knock you over. If you consider too much the cares of this life, the deceitfulness of riches, ungodly mammon, Jesus called it. Money is not amoral. Don't think that money is, oh, well, you can use it for good, you can use it for bad. Careful, it's not. Money will get a hold of you and get a hold of your heart. And if you're not careful, it will choke you and it will kill you. And my issue is, if that happens to you, then I don't believe you were saved in the first place. But you know what? Hey, we can agree to disagree because many, particularly in our fellowship of churches, believe that you can lose your salvation. But hey, that's something we can talk about. But at the end of the day, examine yourself. The Bible says the Lord knows, 1 Timothy, the Lord knows those who are his, yet let them that name the name of Christ depart from iniquity. So we can talk all day about, well, is he saved or is he not saved or perseverance of the saints or you can lose your salvation. You know what? At the end of the day, depart from iniquity. Standard. The fourth one in the parable of the sower is the seed that's sown on good soil. Seed, the word, sown in a good heart. A heart that's pulling up them weeds when it sees them. Uh-uh. Doesn't mean that you can't, you can't be a genuine Christian and not be tempted by the cares of this life and the deceitfulness. We can. But we've got to pull up them weeds like you do this time of the year in the back garden, right? Pull them up. Get rid of them because they will choke the plants. Jesus turns to his disciples. I got off all on that because of Judas. Jesus turns to his disciples in Matthew 28 and says to all excluding him, go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them. You see, when people get converted, we just don't leave them. When someone gets converted, you need to make a what out of them? You need to make a disciple out of them. And you, oh, I ain't got time to talk about the need for you as an individual to first of all make yourself a disciple. And then those around you who love you will do their utmost to make a disciple out of you. And it's a painful process. It's a difficult process. It's an impinging process, but it's a beneficial process. And how do you make a disciple? By teaching them to observe all things that Jesus has commanded. So much to say about that. And then Jesus says to the, this, this group that is now sending, this is the Great Commission, they call it. Jesus sends them. And here they go. I mean, this is why Philip is doing what he's doing. Because the 11 went and did what Jesus said to do. And I hear Philip's preaching. And you know what? This is the reason why we are here. Why well, I'm here, Pastor Ephraim, Pastor Patrick. And you, who potentially, one, ought to already be in ministry, or in the process of being in the ministry, or eventually need to be in the ministry. The writer of Hebrews says, the time when you ought to be teaching others, 
You're still having to be taught the basics, the fundamental principles of the doctrine of Christ. These things ought not to be so, brethren. And you know what? God's helping us, isn't it? Rani up. God's helping us to man up where we're terrified and intimidated by leadership. And no leader here is perfect. You know what I mean? But we're trusting and depending and relying on the Lord to help us. And, I'm, uh, and my prayer is to help you. Our prayer here as a leadership is to help you so that in two, five, ten years' time, half of you are not here. And it's not because you left the church. It's, it's because some of you have left and you've gone and you've planted other churches. And we are taking that legacy forward. And I know that makes your heart beat. Because that's God's purpose for your life. We see in Matthew 28, getting back to the text and the context, we see that genuine salvation ought to result in baptism. Sister sent me a text this week saying, hey, sort out this baptism thing. I need to get baptized. Nothing long. I was like, hey, amen. I never got a chance to get back to that system. Somebody did. And I say amen to that. And we're trying to organize this baptism within the next two, three weeks maximum. Look at verse 13. It says, Then Simon himself also believed. And when he was baptized, he continued with Philip and was amazed, seeing the miracles and the signs which were done. And we're going to come back to this next week. But I'll finish on saying, if a person gets saved, they ought to get baptized. So if you're a believer, you're not saved because you got baptized. And if you're a believer and you ain't been baptized, it don't mean you're not saved. Because baptism doesn't save you. It doesn't save us. We don't teach baptismal regeneration. Mm -mm. You're saved by putting your faith and your trust in Christ and confessing him as your Lord. But now that you've done that, you need to know now go and get baptized. And Peter says, if you can't say all right, what, you just got saved? Yeah, I just got saved. All right, you need to get baptized. What? Uh, uh, you know, I'm not really sure about the baptism thing here, you know. Maybe I'll give it a couple months still. If you say that, then there's a problem. Because Peter says, baptism or your willingness to be baptized is the answer of a good conscience toward God. So if you say, boy, I'm not really sure about the baptism thing, you know, I kind of come to church and sit in the back and that. But I don't know about the baptism. If you say that, there's something wrong because there's no answer of a good conscience before God. Because you know, we saw it when we went to Jamaica. People are like, oh, you, know, you lot of Christians, oh, you've got the Bible, I've got a Bible. We're like, really, you're a Christian? Well, I'm not a baptized Christian. Well, why, why ain't you got baptized? Well, boy, because you know what, I've still got certain things going on in my life. That sounds like, oh, when, I'm, when I've fixed up my life, then I'll get baptized. But that's not, that's not how this thing works. You come, you confess your sin, you ask God to forgive you. He will do that, First John 1, 9. You know, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And now you've got to trust, you've got to say, Lord, I don't want to sin no more. I've got a propensity to sin, but help me. Good, get baptized. Amen, get baptized. And now you're trusting God to help you not to sin. And you will flop and you will fall from time to time, but it will not be your practice. First John says, those who practice sin as a lifestyle are in trouble. But, <sighs> baptism, get baptized. If you haven't been yet, get baptized. Now, as I said, this brother 
Simon, we're going to talk a little bit more about next week because of his semen acceptance of the gospel. Amen? All right, let's pray. Father, thank you for your word is sharp and it's powerful and it pierces and divides asunder soul and spirit and the joints and marrow and is a discerner of our thoughts and the intents of the heart. Your word, Lord, gets right in every crevice and corner. Like the old broom. New broom sweep clean, but old broom nor the corner. That's your word, Lord. It gets right in there. And it helps us to go, oh, no, internally. And, Lord, you know, around here, we're not enamored with people putting up their hands, Lord, and coming up the front and confessing their sin, even though they're able to do that. Lord, this is really more about an individual coming to that genuine place in their heart and in their understanding that, first of all, they're not God. So stop trying to run your own life. And second, Lord, that you are God and we need to respond to that which you've said. And you're coming with such a wonderful message to us. Yeah, you will scold us and tell us off because of our sin. Rightly so. But your desire is to bring us in. Like Adam, where are you? And that's what you're saying to some today, Lord. Where are you? And like Moses, you have to call them twice. Because the first time they might not be responding, Lord, but call them again on the basis of your great mercy and your grace, your tender loving kindness, Lord. Call them again to yourself, I pray. If they're mixed up in, in, in false religion, Lord, in Gnosticism, thinking that there's something that they're not, Lord, help them to sh show them, Lord, show them who you are. Help them personally to see. And, I, and my prayer is, Lord, that this afternoon, in some small way, Lord, you might have taken your word and, and got, got right to the, to, the, to the heart of the matter, which is the matter of the heart. And exposed a brother, exposed a sister for their sinfulness, Lord, and that they would be willing to lay at the foot of the cross, which is where Christ Jesus died, where he bled and he died. In order that their sins may be forgiven. In order that our sins may be forgiven. Thank you for the opportunity to take communion today, Lord, as we remember the death of Christ that brings us life. The righteous for the unrighteous. In order that we might be justified. Father, continue to teach us. Continue to speak to us about, Lord, where we're at personally. And help us, Lord, to examine ourselves to see whether we are in the faith and then that we would work out our own salvation with fear and with trembling lord apart from your grace and your help we can't do it so we yield and give ourselves to you today in jesus name and for jesus sake amen amen you want to stand up with me please